listening to the TTF Internet Radio Network. Tonight's episode of Hey Kids Comics is not the one billed in your listings magazines. We hope this doesn't spoil your enjoyment. And you are here, and I am here. And we are here together. Cuckoo, cuckoo. I am the Eggman. Michael Park is the Eggman. Paul is dead. Yes. Zed's dead. Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Today on Word Association. (laughs) Agent Provocateur. Are we beginning? Um, yeah. Are you sitting quite comfortably? I suppose I am, yeah. Then we shall begin. We could do a better chairs. Ones with cushions on, maybe. We could do a comfy recliners, can't we? Yeah. Armchairs. Yeah. Those those chairs they have in Starbucks. Yeah, they do. Welcome to Cardi Starbucks. That's not a bad idea. You know what we might? We wear our hipster clothes and put our Mac on the table. And have our laptop out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And say that we're writing the great novel, darling. Yes. But I'm not actually doing any writing. Yes. I'm going to sit here and sip my tea. And then when someone asks us if we go to actually buy a coffee, we... Uh... That's just weird. Sorry, love. It's like going to a tea house and having coffee. It's, it's exactly just, like that. It's just wacky. Yeah. It's like going to one of those bars in Amsterdam and not having the brownies. It's like going to a cinema just to buy the food. Why would you... <laughs> Why would you do that? Exactly. I don't think you get enough trails at the anymore. If you wanted to waste your money, why not get married? <laughs> <laughs> what have I told you about telling lies? Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong, the gold kryptonite's power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird. Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense? Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, oh, no, I am not Alfred, so you forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois could all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Hmm? Jimmy Olsen jokes are pretty much going to be lost. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, Kids Comics! Hello, lovelies! Hello. And welcome back to Hey, Kids Comics, a very special series of shows. And they are very special. They're all very special. I like to think that they're all very special. Each more special than the last. Each more special than the last. Like, we're the short bus of comic book podcasts, each more special than the last. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) This doesn't bode well for me. We are the short bus of comic book podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) It's the special bus. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, well, yeah, I was about to tell our lovely listeners, hello, lovely listeners, I am Andrew Leyland, as ever was. And I am Michael Leyland. As ever will be. Yeah. Uh, Happy birthday, Superman, he's gone! Forever. It has flown the coop. Until next year. It has joined the choir invisible. It has ceased to be. It is out there now. It is no longer ours. It is out amongst the bits and the bites and the giga flops and the flobodules and whatever future technology is invented. That has been invented in the two weeks. That has been invented in the two weeks since that finished. And it's no longer ours. It's gone. It's in the ether. It's out there for people to enjoy or mock as they see fit. We became a Batman podcast briefly. Briefly. To get Troika out of the way. Yep. And it was getting it out of the way, really, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, it was all right, I suppose. But forthcoming, a series we like to call 
No More Superheroes, in which Michael and I will be looking at some of our favourite non-superheroic comic book stories. Except when we cheat. Yep. (laughs) But first! Emails. Our first email tonight. Some say he is single-handedly responsible for bringing back purple corduroy trousers. And that he wants everyone in the world to wear a cummerbund. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. Uh, and his heading this week is Superman 6, The Quest for More Money. Okay, did they do a 6? No, but we did. Oh, right. So he's, he's following on from oh, the fact that we did a Superman 6. Yeah, that's clever. Well, we've not got a Superman 6 yet. If you yeah. look at them in order, the fifth one will have been Superman Returns. Yeah. So the new one will be Superman 6, or technically. Superman 1. Yeah. Which came after Superman Returns, which was Superman 1.5. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, hi Luke. Hi Luke. But Darkseid, you said we'd be kings. And you are, Mr. Leyland. The king of fools. With apologies to Bruno Mannheim. <laughs> Andy, says Luke. I wanted to say that on more than one occasion I did manage to email you on the same day as you posted a show. That was when I could download your show at work. It's harder for me to do it now, but them's the breaks. Um, as you see, I, I'll take your word for that. Yep, because we can't exactly check. No, because we can't exactly check, can Unless we? Just cross-reference all the emails we got and when and we when live. we recorded the show. Yeah, and versus when they went live. And no, that would just be too much like hard work. It would. So. Yeah, we'll take your word for it. Anyway, I start reading the Superman books right after the Electric Superman story, which I remembered being actually pretty good. Much better than its current reputation. Mostly this was a financial decision, as I continued to chase after new characters and shiny new stories in other books. So I missed a good deal of these, because as a young man in middle school and then high school, I wasn't exactly flush with cash. But I was still a big Superman fan in this era, and I loved getting a handful of Superman comics every time I would visit the comic store. Triangle numbers were a great thing, dude. I fondly remembered a lot of this era's stories, including Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, of course, Funeral for a Friend, of course, Reign of the Superman, of course, Lex bringing down Metropolis in Action 600. I will always remember the image of the Daily Planet globe crashing to the ground. Was that Action 700? I have no idea. Was that Action 600? Yes, it was Action 600, he's right. Because 500 was the the burned Superman Wonder Woman thing, wasn't it? No idea. I'm getting all mixed up in my numberings. Anyway, uh, the Zero Hour tie-ins, Hunter Frey, dead again. The death of Clark Kent, the Superman Revenge Squad. The Wedding and Honeymoon, Underworld Unleashed. And the rebirth of Bald Lex, Lex's Contessa girlfriend, and so on and so forth. I never watched Lois and Clark, but my wife did. While we watched Smallville, my wife would often comment that she liked Tom Welling, but that he was not as cute as Dean Cain. I never quite saw the appeal myself, or whatever works. I did, however, really like Superman the Animated Series and still enjoy it to this day. Superman the Animated Series is the awesome. Yes, it is. We like Superman the Animated Series a great deal. Uh, on to the question of who is cuter, Tom Welling or Dean Kane. I don't feel <laughs> qualified to answer that question. Me neither. But I know someone who is. Okay. My lovely wife, Angela. Angela, who is cuter, Tom Welling or Dean Kane? Ew. Would that be a neither option from you then? Tom Welling's cuter. Tom Welling's cuter than Dean Kane. Yeah. Okay. That's all we're asked because we have no frame of reference for this. Luke has mentioned his wife thought that Dean Kane was cuter than Tom Welling. I wouldn't choose either of them, but. Would you not? Who's your favourite Superman in the My He's a Bit of Alright department? The new one. <laughs> I 
collar. Yeah, but Matt Boomer, alas, would 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 not would not be able to satisfy you. Oh, he does. Does he really? <laughs> so while watching White Collar and the vibrator comes in useful, does it? Oh, Timothy Oliphant. He would make a. He wouldn't make a very good Superman. No. He'd make a very good Dirty Harry, but not a very good Superman. If you'd have asked me who my favourite Batman was, that was easy. Who's your favourite Batman? Kevin Conroy. Oh, everybody's favourite Batman. Anyway, Luke's email continues. <laughs> the opening piece of music is one of my favourite Superman themes of all the myriad different ones we've ever had. There are lots of great stories in this series, especially once Dinny and Tim started exploring the larger DCU. Some folks don't like how Superman had a lot of guest stars, whereas Batman did not, but Superman should be front and centre for the DC universe, unlike Batman. So team ups with Doctor Fate, The Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, and yes, even Batman, like the Dark Knight over Metropolis story you guys covered, which I unfortunately have not read. We'll need to buy these comics. Really set the stage for the Justice League to come afterwards. Well, you will be able to buy Dark Knight over Metropolis, young Luke. Yes. Because, in no small part due to our show, I'm sure, DC are releasing it as a trade paperback. Or hardcover. Or either. Yeah, either are. Yeah. Actually, from Crisis to Crisis did a whole get this release as trade paperback campaign. So I'm, I'm quite prepared to let them take the full credit <laughs> for it. Because <laughs> I doubt that DC Comics listen to this drivel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somewhere, I think someone in the DC offices are... Why? I don't know. I Why just, do you think this? I just like the idea. Do you? Yeah. You like the idea that Jeff Johns sits in, in his room? No, I didn't say Jeff Johns, but you know, maybe once or twice he's walking past and he's, he's heard us and he just laughs to himself. And, and He chuckles away heartily at how yeah. wrong we are. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Everyone else does. Yeah. Uh, Luke continues, and of course, the bad guys. Lex, Metallo, Bizarro, Mr. Mixes, Pitlick. There's a great bit with his girlfriend as well. Does whatever her name is poofs into different pin-up girls' outfits to try and get Mixie's attention to no avail. Hilarious. Weather Wizard, Luminous, Volcano, Toyman, Creepy, Calibat, Michael Dorn, Granny Goodness, Ed Asner, and her female furies, and of course, Dark Side, my client side. All this and robot dinosaurs to boot. I enjoyed this trip down memory lane, and now I have a hankering for some of those classic to me Superman comics. Looking forward to number seven. Keep it up, dudes. Luke. P.S. By the way, Michael, Gone with the Wind is in colour. Just Yeah, dude. Yeah. Did you say it was in black and white? I've no idea. I think we were on about black and white films being in colour, and you said there was an article about, about it becoming colour. So I was asking, was it in black and white then? No. The Garden with the Wind was a colour movie. Right. Yeah. Our next email tonight, Superman in the Double Zeros, is from Mr. Michael Bailey. Hello, Michael. Hello, Dad. <laughs> Hello, other Michael. <laughs> Hello, Michael. Hello, mates. Well, I owe you an email about the 90s episode, but I'm going to skip that so I can talk to you about the most recent instalment of Happy Birthday Superman whilst everything is fresh in my mind. Oh, God, confusing reading order. I know. Yeah. We can't read... Where's the triangle numbering system <laughs> on these emails? This is usually... What? I know what they are. Do you? I have corrupted you in so many ways. <laughs> you got those. Name all the Doctor Who's in order. I can't do that. Oh, I've, I've failed. You've not. I have failed in my job as a husband. There was the old dude. The, the old dude, yes. And then the other the one slightly dude. younger dude. And then the slightly younger but older dude. And then there was another dude. There was Wurzel Gummidge. <laughs> and then Tom Becker. Yes. And then there was another dude. Another dude, yes. And there was the small dude. The vet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there was the guy who's a celebrity. The, the the one you're about to talk about. Yeah, and the, the one with the curly hair. Yes. And there was another one. There was another dude. And then was it? 
A McGann. Then it was a McGann, yes. <laughs> And then it was Christopher Eccleston. And then it was Chris Eccleston. Then it was David Tennant. Then it was the lovely David Tennant. And then Tennant. it was over the hands. Hands. Hands in new places. Mr. Smith. Yes, Mr. Smith. Anyway, this email is nothing to do with Doctor Who. Angela just keeps distracting us tonight. which no Keeping us focused. We're trying to be focused and short. They really like me more than you. Focused and short. <laughs> Sadly, that's true. <laughs> I get the feeling if she did a comic book podcast, the yeah, ratings yeah. would be much higher than ours. Our 22. We've gone up. It's not a good day, though. We used to have 16. Uh, Mikey, 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 B. Mikey, see how recovers from that mistake? It was very good. I thought so. Uh, this is usually the best part of the email. No, it isn't. This is usually the part of the email where I launch into a long-winded monologue about my thoughts and feelings on the subject, or in this case, the decade of Superman you are talking about, continues Michael. The thing is that Andy, for the most part, covered all those thoughts and feelings quite well, so I don't feel the need to go into them again. It was an odd time for Superman that was better in the earlier part of the decade rather than at the end. In fact, the only point of disagreement I have with what was said has to do with Lex Luthor. If I understood what was said correctly... No, you didn't, mate. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. If I understood what was said correctly, Andy put forth a theory that Lex Luthor's role in the Superman books was beefed up, and beefed up to the point that he nearly overshadowed Superman, and was presented in a more heroic light, which was wrong-headed. I'll agree with the last part. Brian Azzarello's Lex Luthor miniseries was awful in just about every sense of the word. And in between that, Alex Ross's Justice series, and what Jeff Johns and others would do with Lex in the latter part of the decade, there was a sense that Lex would have been this awesome dude if not for the accursed alien. The thing is, this was very much the later part of the decade sort of thing. In the early 2000s, Lex was very much the villain, and why he had a substantial role, it was no more so than before Boganza took over. In fact, the whole him running for president thing came out of nowhere. He seemed to be lying low for a few months, and then right after the Emperor Joker storyline, he shows up with Pete Ross announcing his candidacy. It actually made for a neat story beat, because we just spent two months in this Joker-created reality, and when we come back and Lex Luthor is running for president, is it real? Is the Joker still running the show? It was a great piece of pacing, and I loved it at the time. After he became president, it was pretty obvious that he was still very much the villain. A compelling villain, and one I liked a great deal, but I never had the sense that they were trying to make him right. And believe me, my radar for this was, and is, quite substantial. Um, I'm not going to disagree with Mike, though, but... Okay. Because it's a very different reading experience when you read everything from month to month yeah. to reading seven, eight, nine trade paperbacks over the course of two weeks, which is how I read all of that stuff. Yeah. So it seemed to me like Lex was always around and quite omnipresent and then suddenly he was running for president because I read all those trades, No Limits, Endgame, Till Death Was Part of Critical Condition, President Lex, Emperor Joker, Return to Krypton and Our Wills at War Volumes 1 and 2 over a two-week period. I thought President Lex was after him for a joker. Uh, President Lex, no, he's president. No, is it? Have I got Emperor Joker in the wrong place? No, oh, did we just read in the email that it was after Emperor Joker? Yes, Lex. I've got Emperor Joker in the wrong place. All right, I will fix that on the shelf. Wrong reading. Because order. that just confused. Triangle numbering, dude. <laughs> So, yeah, so there's a very different reading experience, though, between how Michael read it, which was on a, a monthly schedule, and how I read it. I still think they focus too much on Lex at the expense of other bad guys. Mm. And I, I was much happier in the Bronze Age where Lex only showed up every now and again. But that's just me, you know. It's like now in the Batman comics where Joker's everywhere. Yeah, well, although they kept the Joker off the stage for two years, they didn't have the Joker no. around for any of... It was more like one. Was it? Yeah. They didn't. They, he was in the very beginning of New Fifty Two, and then they kept him off the stage for a year, didn't they? Yeah. Which is fair enough. I don't mind that. My 
article continues, this doesn't change the fact that your coverage of the Joker-centric issue of action wasn't great, because it was. I need to go back and reread the story, because it sounds like the Joker was presented as the ambassador of Karak, which is a neat bit of retconning, because in the Death in the Family story, he was made ambassador of Iran, complete with a job pitch from the Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> I never... Khomeini... Come come I, I can never pronounce his name. But he was a real-life figure. Uh-huh. My guess is that the change was made to make the story feel a little more current. Khomeini had been dead for a year by the time this story was published, and frankly the Iran thing dates death in the family in a big way. It was actually dated soon after it came out. From what Jim Sterling told me at DragonCon last year, they were worried that he would go to die before the issue hit the stand, so that's a weird bit of business that I just didn't notice at the time, I don't remember noticing. In regards to Action Comics 775, I found your thoughts to be fascinating. You both had a perspective on the series that surprised me. Surprised, because frankly, outside of a pretty fun debate on Facebook a month or so back, I never really gave this story all that much thought. I remember enjoying it at the time, I was rather touched by Superman's final speech, but other than that, it was just one of the ups in the up-and-down world that was Joe Kelly on Action Comics. Michael made some very good points about how the more vocal and mainstream comic book press can embrace a story without understanding the context. Andy pointed out that Superman fans seemed to like this story too, but still didn't quite get what all the fuss was about. I can't speak for all Superman fans, but if I had to take a guess, the main reason that this story is so fondly remembered is that it came out at a time when taking the piss out of superheroes was coming into fashion again, and Superman's speech at the end of the issue touched a chord with many Superman fans, who were once again in the position of having to defend themselves. So all of the very valid points you made are dead on correct, but for some readers, and I am lumping myself into this, all of that disappeared right there at the end. Sometimes one moment can make an entire story seem better. I don't know about that. The mo- that moment might work if it was at the end. <clears throat> well, it kind of was at the end, really. Yeah, but if you have that moment which makes the rest of it better at mm. the beginning, and then you have all the crap, yeah. <clears throat> your last thought's going to be, wow, that was crap. That's but if you true. have that moment at the end, the last thought's going to be, that was good. Yeah. See, I don't know about one moment can can make a film. It's like... You know I'm a, an apologist for the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. But the fact that it has a kick-ass lightsaber battle at the end of it doesn't make it a good film. True. But it is a kick-ass lightsaber battle, that. Maybe you should just cut out all the bits with Hayden Christensen. It'll be He's not in Phantom them. Menace. Oh, there you go, then. <laughs> I take back everything I've said about the Phantom Menace. It's a great yeah, but, film. Yeah, but the other guy's in it. The kid. He's, he's just as bad. Cut him out. So, you know what? Just get rid of Anakin. Yeah. Just having become Darth Vader straight away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't muster up any more enthusiasm for Action Comics 775. Mm. I'm happy if people enjoy it. We we didn't. But alright, it's it's a fair point. I suppose I can understand how people may have read it, remembered the ending and thought, ooh, that was good. And there is a difference between reading something for pleasure and reading something for the purpose of dissecting it. I mean, I've mentioned before, I love a mock time the Star Trek episode, I had never noticed the flaw into Pring's logic till I had to write the synopsis when I appeared on Two True Freaks covering it. Fair enough. Uh, And it's like, I've watched this episode 30 times and never noticed that. Mm. And I suppose it's the same thing with this. We read it with a different eye for the purposes of doing the show, so... Uh, Michael continues, and to be fair, a lot of people read this story once and then filed it away with warm thoughts in their hearts and minds because of that final speech. And to be fair, it does encapsulate what Superman is supposed to represent. It's only after you take a good look at the story and the problems begin, well, that is the, both the blessing and the curse of critical analysis, which I think is what we just said. Yeah. So, Michael, we're, we're in complete agreement. So we're not even, we're not even disagreeing, though. No. Nope. I do like it when that happens. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I don't believe that most, well, not all, but most, of the readers that love this story have looked at it in that manner. All they see is the speech and are pretty much satisfied. It's not bad, it's not good, it's just how it is, to my mind anyway. As always, I enjoyed the show and look forward to the finale. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Mikey Mike B. Michael, we, we, we covered two more issues in that in that show. We did. He stopped listening. <laughs> he turned off after Action 775. Yeah. You, know, you know what he's going to do? He's gonna that was a good place to stop. Yeah, but he's going to go back to um, the 90s hmm. and come back. To the 2000s. Ah, right, so we'll get an email that is about the 90s episode. And then also about the end of the 2000s. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay, okay. That about wraps it up for emails today because we are recording a little bit earlier than we normally do. Because somebody has a life. I do. And has an elsewhere to be. Mm. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents... The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, now a regular feature on Star Wars Monthly Monday, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. And we're back. We grew up in this country. Did we? Yes, we did. Really? Yes. Uh, which had quite the diverse comics publishing market. Superhero comics were not the only thing on the market, with the UK comics market actually being dominated by war and humour comics. From comics library magazines like Battle and Commando, to the more traditional humour comics like The Beano and The Dandy, to the sci-fi thrill power of 2000 AD, there was never a shortage of comics to read. Now, whilst I had a huge interest in US comics, scouring the nation for just the merest glimpse of them, other types of comics, from Asterix to Tintin, were easier to find, so I pretty much read anything I could get my hands on. Whilst today, I'm a little more picky in what I buy, largely due to the fact that you seem to spend all my money on what you want. I don't, I have like four comics. Yeah. Uh, then again, largely due to the cost. They cost a lot more nowadays. Uh, we're still likely to read lots more different genres and styles, aren't we? Yeah. In fact, my favourite comic at the moment is Saga, which yeah. is 
was a sci-fi. It's science fiction, but there's something else to it, isn't there? It's yeah. not just sci-fi. So, for tonight's No More Superheroes choice, my pick is a science fiction licensed comic book series that spun out of a popular theatrical feature film into comics form in the late 1970s, was published by Marvel, and featured a huge contribution from industry legend Walt Simonson. I am, of course, talking about Battlestar Galactica. In the seventh millennium of time, a tribe of humanoids engaged in a terrifying conflict against a race of machines. The humans lost. Now, led by their last surviving warship, the mighty Battlestar Galactica, a handful of survivors move slowly across the heavens in search of their ancestral brothers. A tribe of humans known through ancient records to be located somewhere on a distant, shining planet. A planet called Earth. See, you thought I was going to say Star Wars there, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. Battlestar Galactica was a phenomenally expensive television series created by Glenn A. Larson and distributed by Universal Pictures. Originally developed as a series of TV movies in the wake of the success of Star Wars in 1977, Galactica was scheduled to debut in America on Sunday, the 17th of September 1978, taking the place in the schedules of the recently cancelled The Six Million Dollar Man on ABC television. Spurred on by how good the rushes looked, ABC ordered the show to watch full hour series. The show's creator is an interesting character in and of himself. Nicknamed Glenn Larceny by Harlan Ellison for his propensity for ripping off movies and putting them on television, Butch Cassidy became alias Smith and Jones, the Burt Reynolds movie Hooper became The Fall Guy, Coogan's Bluff became McLeod, et al. Larson maintains that the production of Galactica so soon after Star Wars was merely coincidence and was the result of his dusting off one of his old screenplays entitled Adam's Ark. Whatever you say, Glenn. The original three-hour opening pilot episode entitled The Saga of a Star World is reputed to have cost a then-whopping, and still eye-watering, $12 million. And this was in 1978. To put this into perspective, Star Wars only cost $9 million. The central idea of Galactica was that somewhere out in space in the seventh millennium of time, there are a colony of human beings who have engaged in a war against a race of machines known as the Cylons. And after a peace agreement turned out to be a ruse, the human race was all but wiped out with one exception, a mighty aircraft carrier in space named the Battlestar Galactica. Seeking out all the remaining survivors, the Galactica then led this ragtag fugitive fleet on a lonely quest for a mythical planet called Earth, whence all life hailed. The series followed the benevolent dictatorship of the fleet by Galactica's commander, Adama, played by Lorne Green, and two hotshot fighter pilots, Adama's son, Captain Apollo, played by Richard Hatch, and the rogue with a heart, Lieutenant Starbuck, played by Dirk Benedict. There was also a large cast of supporting characters, all with spacey names like Kevin, Cassiopeia, Athena, and Boomer. Well, maybe not Kevin. <laughs> To recoup some of the losses of this spectacular TV venture, Universal released an edited version of the pilot into cinemas in Canada and around the rest of the world in the summer of 1978, not only bringing in some of that Star Wars money, but also beating a number of other Star Wars knockoffs into the cinemas in the process. Released in surround sound, Galactica did well enough in cinemas that not only was a sequel produced for cinema exhibition, the original, in a classic Coles to Newcastle situation, was also released theatrically in the US. 
I first saw Galactica in its sequel form. It became the norm for TV pilots and spliced together episodes of successful TV shows to be released as movies or support features in other territories around the world. The Man from UNCLE and the 50s Adventures of Superman had both done this, as would The Incredible Hulk and The Amazing Spider-Man. Mission Galactica, the Cylon Attack, as the sequel was called, was released as a double bill with the original pilot movie for Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and I saw both of these at the local Flea Pit Cinema. I have to admit, despite the derivative nature of Galactica, although it has to be said it's no more derivative than Star Wars itself, I like the film. Actually, three TV episodes sewn together. I got a huge kick out of the Vipers, the Galacticans' fighter jet of choice, and the aerial dogfights with them taking on the Cylon Raiders were all well done and reminiscent of Star Wars, although with John Dykstra, Richard Edland, Dennis Muren, Ken Ralston and Joe Johnston providing effects work, the similarities were no doubt intentional. I enjoyed the music, a nice bombastic score by Stu Phillips, and I liked the Cylons and overall look of the show. The cast were personable, with Benedict's character Starbuck being a favourite, and if the ropey dialogue or loose relationship with real science was even noticed by my eight-year-old self, it didn't spoil my enjoyment. I started to investigate further and discovered two things. One, this was a TV show. Universal releasing the movie theatrically had meant they had held back sales of the show worldwide so as to not hurt their pockets. And number two, it was a comic book! Yes, Marvel, who'd had a huge hit on their hands with the comics version of Star Wars, had quickly snapped up the rights to a comic adaptation. I rented the original film on video. Whilst we didn't have a VCR in 1981, my mum did, and liked it even more than the sequel film, although I was a little confused as to how a character that I had seen in the sequel, Alive and Well, was apparently beheaded in the first film. Whilst the series would eventually make its way to the ITV region I lived in in 1982-83, meaning Dirt Benedict was on TV twice a week, playing essentially the same character in both this show and the A-Team, I discovered the Marvel Super Special Battlestar Galactica movie adaptation, which has an absolutely gorgeous cover by Bob Larkin. No fool me, I quickly realised that this adaptation bore little resemblance to the one I'd rented on video. Marvel had based the Super Special on an earlier version of the script that was changed substantially in the editing process, so much so that actress Jane Seymour was shocked to see her character Serena not only lived through the story, but she never had cancer at all, something she only learned when she watched the show. This was not the only change. The character I had seen beheaded in the pilot film was given a reprieve in the TV show to be a recurring villain, and as such, Marvel was given the opportunity to fix all this when they special edition eyed to the pilot film into the first three issues of the regular monthly comic. Following this, Marvel adapted the two-part TV episode Lost Planet of the Gods, and then went their own way. In the UK, the Battlestar comic series was originally supposed to feature as a backup strip in Star Wars Weekly, as Des Skin, then editor of Marvel UK, felt they were a good fit. But the subsequent lawsuit from Lucas against Larson about Galactica's thematic similarities to Star Wars canned that idea. The Galactica comic was instead serialised in the Star Heroes pocketbook series, alongside Bill Mantlow and Michael Golden's Micronaut comic, in late 1980, early 1981. Marvel UK chose to skip directly over to issue 4, the adaptation of the film being widely available as a paperback book, where Walt Simonson took over as artist. Despite a few hiccups, issue 17 was a reworked issue of Tarzan after that title's cancellation, similar to how an issue of Star Wars was cannibalised from a cancelled Warlord of Mars comic book. The comic was frequently better than the TV show that spawned it. Whilst there would be a revolving door of creators for the first half a dozen issues, Simonson's run on the comic would kick in properly with issue 11, and later he found himself the scripter when writer Roger McKenzie jumped ship. 
In many ways, it's not hard to see Simon using this comic to show what he can do, and he does it in fine style. Subplots would be introduced, characters dropped, Starbuck is sidelined for a number of issues thanks to a long-running storyline, and the focus would be more on high-octane sci-fi action and horror than the rather staid wannabe western that the show became. Simonson even did a story in issue 14 entitled Trial and Error, in which we believe that Apollo's adopted son, Boxy, was a flesh-and-blood character, and made us feel sorry for his robot dog, Muffet, in a manner much better than anything the TV show ever managed. When did you first see Battlestar Galactica, Michael? Our old video we had. We did, we had the pilot film on video, don't we? Yeah. And you used to watch that as a kid, I'd forgotten that. That was the first time I saw it. You actually watched that on your own as well, you didn't ask me. Nope. Can you watch this with your dad? You just would watch it? Yeah. You prefer the O3 one though, don't you? I do, actually. I, the O3 one is a much better television show than the original. Mm. But I still kind of like the original. Oh, the original, I prefer the remaking because it's more of a TV show <laughs> the bleakness of the new one yeah <laughs> gee I wonder why that appeals to you <laughs> Uh, for this show, I have picked one of my all-time favourite issues of the series, Battlestar Galactica 16, which was published by Marvel Comics and has a June 1980 cover date, but was on sale on March 11th, 1980. The cover by Walt Simonson is, in a word, spectacular. The corner box is a rotoscoped still of a Cylon, and it's a mishmash cover that really shouldn't work, yet oddly does. The Cylon Mark III, there is no comparison, reads the cover copy. There's a huge symbolic head of the Mark III Cylon, which resembles a regular Cylon in that it has red eyes, which presumably go woo but has two of them instead of the regular Cyclopean appearance of the regular warriors. It's also wearing a purple scarf, which I didn't understand because I don't imagine that robots can get cold. Towards the bottom of the page, a colonial warrior pulls out his blaster and by his her colour we can assume it is Captain Apollo, although his resemblance to actor Richard Hatch is minimal. Across the middle, an unknown starship opens fire on a colonial viper as planets and stars hover in the background. Across the bottom, the Battlestar Galactica speeds forth. Like I say, it's very busy and should be cluttered, but it isn't. It is, in fact, awesome. What do you think of the cover, Mike? I like it. It's pretty cool. It's pretty damn good, isn't it? Yeah. It shows Simonson's propensity for getting the hardware right. The Vipers look cool, and especially seeing it's an undercarriage shot yeah. of the Viper, which you didn't really get a lot of in the TV show. And his, his, his drawing of the Galactica's great. It's a brilliant cover. Mm. I really like that cover. I think that's absolutely stunning. If you wish to see the cover, lovely listener, pop along to our website. We always put the covers on the website, so you can go and have a look at them. Berserker was scripted and plotted by Roger McKenzie. Walter Simonson was the penciler, inker, and colorist. Rick Barker lettered. No, he didn't. Rick Parker lettered. Alan Milgram and Louise Jones were editor-type people. Jim Shooter was editor-in-chief. Bionic Bob Layton assisted in some capacity. The top of the page were traditionally Marvel comics of this era have the saga cell which explained how the characters got their powers and the status quo of the the comic you were about to read, is just the opening monologue that appeared on the opening of every episode of the TV show. So, to save me reading it, here it is. There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians, or the Toltecs, or the Mayans. Some believe that there may yet be brothers of man, who even now fight to survive, 
somewhere beyond the heavens. The story runs thusly. As the Galactica and its fleet pass an uncharted world, a world potentially replete with Tylium, the fuel they need to power their starship, a signal is picked up. Commander Adama immediately recognises it as a Cylon intruder alarm and orders a blocking field to be thrown up. However, blocking the signal means there is no communications between the fleet either, so after tracking down the source of the Cylon transmitter, he orders a Viper patrol to blow it out of the sky. Of course, nothing is ever that simple, and the patrol learns that the transmitter is electronically linked to an explosive charge at the heart of the planet, and destroying the transmitter will destroy the planet. A bomb squad is dispatched to the transmitter as a Viper patrol spots an unknown ship. They peel off to locate it as the bomb squad shuttle launches with Captain Apollo and his squadron running along as cover. The unknown ship suddenly appears and attacks the shuttle, but Apollo's squadron engage. The unknown vessel is superior, however, and Apollo's squadron is quickly whittled down, as was the patrol before them. The bomb squad runs into more trouble as the transmitter is booby-trapped. As they proceed with caution, Apollo is the last man standing and tries to lose the unknown vessel amidst the terrain of the planet. The unknown vessel falls for none of Apollo's tricks and succeeds in disabling Apollo's Viper. With barely any manoeuvrability, Apollo coaxes the Viper in for an emergency landing but vows to take this thing with him. Popping the canopy off his own Viper, he opens fire with his blaster, blowing the canopy off his rival ship clean off. The booby traps claim a life, but the rest of the bomb squad manage to defuse the last bypass, neutralising the transmitter, and head back to the shuttle as Apollo crashes his Viper on the planet, as does his pursuer. Apollo is on the run as the pursuer reveals himself to be a Mark III Cylon, an Imperator, I think I'm pronouncing that right, designed and built by the Imperious leader himself. Only seven were created, but the Imperious leader marooned them on far-off worlds, fearing they were too smart and would lead a revolt. For a thousand yarns, this one has waited for a faster-than-light craft to take him back to the silent homeworld to reclaim his birthright. Apollo ducks and dies, but the oppressive heat and heavy gravity on the planet have him at a disadvantage. He ducks down into an active volcano and unravels his blaster for the core element coil. He ties it around a rock and then hides the other half under him, on the other side of the walkway. Luring the Imperator in by pretending to be wounded, Apollo trips him up and he plummets into the lava below. With the transmitter destroyed, he contacts the Galactica, reporting the ample Tylium deposits on the planet. Some weeks later, after the fleet had left, the Cylon Mark III emerges from the lava. With numerous destroyed vipers strewn across the surface, he believes he can rebuild a fully functioning fighter craft. It's just a matter of time. Anyway, let's have a look at what we thought of Battlestar Galactica Berserker. Page one is an absolutely gorgeous piece of art. You're going to hear this a lot, lovely listener, mm-hmm. throughout this issue. Uh, Simonson was an excellent sci-fi artist, as proven by his adaptation of Alien. And his work here is every bit as equal to the work he would go on to do on Star Wars. The Galactica and the fleet drop into a new solar system, and the transmitter device comes into view in the foreground. The colours are also gorgeous, with the red planet and the jet black backgrounds and the wonderfully portrayed spacescape behind. I do like as well that he actually has recognisable ships from the TV show. Yeah, I was looking at the ships. Like, there's the three-disc one. Yeah. Which is in the new one as well. Which is in the new one, yeah. And there's a couple of the aggro ships, if you look very carefully at the back, you know, where they grew all the plants, the hydroponic ships, which in the TV show was just stock footage from Silent Running. 
Fair enough. But I do, so I like that. I also like that he signed it with his little dinosaur mm. signature on the splash page. I like how the, the satellite thing looks like a Cylon. Yeah. It's very... It's an excellent splash. Oh. I want some original art from this issue. That's that's the eye. Yeah. Where it goes woo-woo. Woo-woo. And that's the mouth thing, though. It's yeah. a silent face. Do you know, I'd not noticed that, but you're absolutely right, yeah. The satellite thing does have... It does look like a Cylon head. Yeah. Well done. I'd not spotted that. That's fantastic. Oh, more kudos to, to Mr. Simonson. So the Cylons are creating things in their own image. But why not? All the technology looks like them. Yeah. Uh, page two. Panel one's another gorgeous shot of the Galactica, which is not an easy ship to draw. Is it not? No. The Enterprise is easy. The Enterprise is essentially two cigars in a circle. The Millennium Falcon is The easy. Millennium Falcon's a hamburger with an olive at the side of it. Yeah. Uh, the Galactica is like a big crocodile. So it's actually quite a difficult... I used to draw the Galactica all the time in high school. Did you? Yeah, in my notepads, and I used to draw Vipers as well. I do the same. Because it was on when I was in high school. Mm. I just started high school, I think, in 82. So, 82, 81, 82, yeah. So I used to draw them all the time. The Galactica's not an easy ship to draw. And the bridge of the Galactica it was never particularly well designed in the TV show. Certainly not as well designed as the Enterprise. Uh, Simonson does a, a better job of translating it to the printed page than a number of artists in the comics. Uh, with some previous artists, actually gave Adama somewhere to sit. They gave him like a command chair, you know, like Captain Kirk has. Yeah. He never had that in the series. Fair so enough. I can only assume those people didn't actually watch the show. Could you imagine him sat down like uh, Kirk, though? Yeah. He wouldn't really, would he? Adama wasn't really that kind of captain. He wasn't kind of a sit-down person. No, he was very avuncular, which mm. very kind. Um, the Marvel series only had the rights to the pilot and the first two-part episode, and was, under terms of that contract, forbidden to use anything from the series after that point. So the comic series doesn't have any of the later characters, like Sheba... Right. and the Battlestar Pegasus and, and all that stuff that came into it later on. They also did not have the actor likenesses, presumably, so they don't have to bother getting clearance from the actors. A headache, by all accounts. So the fact that Simerson is able to make the characters all still look like themselves without looking like the actors is a testament to his skill. His tech is where the boot really shines, though. Whilst his Galactica is awesome, mm-hmm. it wasn't my favourite in the comics Brent Anderson from Astro City Mm. did an issue and his Galactica was absolutely fantastic much more detailed but his Vipers are sleek and wonderful the shot of them launching on the bottom of page 3 is fantastic isn't it you're just going to hear this a lot about the art in this issue. Yeah. That it's fantastic. Don't bother saying it and record it and then just keep putting it and just keep clipping it out and putting it in. What did you think of the art? I um I prefer the ships and well, the ships more than the people, really. His tech. Yeah. Well, if you consider that his hands were tied and that he's, he can't make them look like the actors, mm. if you keep that in mind, then he did a pretty damn good job. This is pretty cool, because I'm used to Walter Simonson uh, now. Which is a lot different, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think it's as good? No. Right. Okay, fair enough. See, I'm waiting till his, um, his Hulk run comes out. Yeah. Before I decide whether I don't like current Walter Simonson. Oh, he's moving on that now. Yeah, he's, he's going to do a few issues of the Hulk, isn't he? Uh, page four, this is getting repetitive, but the space shots are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. There's a brilliant shot on the top panel of whatever page this is. Page five of uh, the Vipers approaching the transmitter. They're all no names. 
So you know they're not going to survive the issue. The Battlestar Red shirt. Because that's how Battlestar Galactica works, yeah. I don't understand why they recolored the helmets in the comic. Maybe they didn't have the uh, license to the helmets. Uh, well, they're drawing them. But yeah. they've, they've recolored them so they're, like, they're red and white. Whereas in the show they were yellow, weren't they? They were. Maybe, maybe in the comics they've introduced them like different ranks. So they different helmets. Well, they've made it so that they have the pilot's name on the helmets. Yeah. Like they do in real life, but they never did on the show. Hmm. But I always thought that was just for ease of identification in the comic, that you knew who was talking. It's, it's, uh, it made sense to me at the time. Um, Simonson never seems to get much attention paid to his writing. But this plot was much tighter and better structured than arguably even the best episodes of the show. He sets everything up in the first couple of pages and then pays it all off later. The jamming of the communications causes problems later. Delta Squad here pick up the alien ship and then just disappear. But we learn later the Vipers are strewn all over the landscape. Granted, the comics have no budget, whereas the TV show's over-reliance on stock footage became its biggest sticking point. And this story, which really isn't that overly ambitious for comics would have probably cost a season's budget on television. Page 8, another element that, while it's not focused on in the 78 original, would become a big deal in the 03 remake. A member of the bomb squad here says he's never defused a bomb in his life. Which I thought was quite good. In the the 2003 version, um, they would regularly have people have to take jobs that they've got no experience of, wouldn't they? Because they just had a shortage of personnel. Mm. You're a survivor. What did you do in in Caprica? Well, I was an accountant. Now you're a bomb squad engineer. Because that's what they had to be, isn't it? Mm. To survive. I do like how uh, he's called Shadrach. Yeah. He he looks like a Shadrach. (laughs) Shadrach was a continuing character in the comic books. Mm. Like the chief engineer, like Tyrrell would become in the new one, yeah. the old three one. They didn't have a character like that in the original series, so he essentially became that. You know, I, I read him with a old, grouchy Irish accent. You reckon? Yeah. That totally works for him. It does, yeah. I, I, I quite like that. Um, page six, there's no real explanation given of how the Mark III Cylon built his sublight vessel, other than a single line of dialogue on the last page saying that he managed it with very little resources. I got from that the implication there was that he's managed to lure people into the planet before. Yeah. And maybe cobbled bits of their ship to make his own. Um, if I have a complaint about his starship, it doesn't look very Galactica. No. When I was reading it, actually, it looks like um, the ship from Ratchet and Clank. It does a bit. It does look like Ratchet and Clank's spaceship, yeah. But but I suppose you're right. It, it, do you know what it also looks like? It looks like a Harrier jump jet. Yeah. Doesn't it? That looks like a Harrier. So, that, mm, I mean, if he's cobbled it together out of, you know, stone knives and burskins, so I suppose he's done quite a good job of it. It just didn't seem like it fitted in with Galactica tech. But all the other art on this page is gorgeous. The Vipers launching and then speeding away from the fleet. The, the art's just brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Page 7 is the beginning of a wonderful sequence of aerial dogfights that probably would have cost a fortune on TV. And this entire midsection of the comic is great. The Viper Cylon battle is faster paced and more exciting than anything on TV. Were the effects, whilst great for the time, were still quite lethargic. Here there's banking and swooping. And it's Simonson's credit this reads so well. I was highly amused that there is a colonial warrior with the name Hannibal Mm. in an issue where there was no Starbuck. So in the issue with no face, there was still a Hannibal. Yeah. I quite like that. I wonder if they had a Murdoch. 
He might have. That would have Elsewhere been. on Galactica. Elsewhere on Galactica there was a Murdoch and a BA. BA doesn't like to fly. He's out of luck, isn't he? <laughs> Stuck on a spaceship. You have to keep him in the brick. Just <laughs> feeding milk all the time. Uh, page nine. Simonson ratchets up the tension even more by having the transmitter be booby-trapped. So he just keeps adding to the level of danger that they're in. And the shots of the Vipers, again, in the middle panel, is gorgeous. Look at that. Mm. That's fantastic, isn't it? Uh, the funky Galactica lingo, centons, microns, yarons, and even the swear words frack and felgacarb get ported over into the comics. The creative use of frack as an expletive was more pronounced in the comics than it was on TV, and it would take the 2003 reimagining to take it one step further. My personal favourite being Mother Fracker. Yeah. Which I quite liked a great deal. Sadly, the all three version didn't use the other lingo preferring instead the rather mundane minutes, seconds and hours, and even ditching Felgacarb. Mm. I always liked Felgacarb. Not as good as Frack. Oh, no. Obviously, but it's quite good. One of the disadvantages of the constant use of stock shots in the TV show was that the colonial warriors were seen to reverse their thrusters, then hit the braking flaps, allowing the Cylons to overshoot them, and thus the Vipers would destroy the Cylons from behind. The first time they did this trick, it was fun. After they did it in every third episode, you did start wondering how the Cylons actually managed to destroy the colonies, being as they were so fracking dense. Here, Simonson hangs a lovely lantern on this. Apollo tries this manoeuvre, cockily thinking, this always works, only to have the Mark III not fall for it, mock Apollo for even trying it, and then come close to actually blowing Apollo's Viper out of the sky in another awesome sequence of aerial dogfightery. I like that. It's all pretty cool. It is, it's excellent. You don't have a lot to say about this one because it was good. Yeah. So it's probably good comics. Uh, page 12 was an absolute first class action sequence that would have been practically impossible to film on a TV budget in 1978. Apollo's Viper, seriously damaged, careens towards the surface of the planet. Apollo struggles with the controls, lets the Mark III get close, pops his own canopy, stands up in his seat and opens fire at the Mark III, blowing his canopy off and forcing him to land as well. Simonson not only pulls off this fast-paced action sequence on one page... But his magnificently detailed artwork makes it clear to the reader exactly what's happening and when. It also shows Apollo's ingenuity. Because in the TV show, he always came off as a poor relation to Starbuck, didn't he? Mm. Starbuck seemed to get all the action. Apollo was just a bit dull in comparison. Page 13. Again, the shot of the Viper crash landing is simple but effective in artwork, but would have been prohibitively expensive on television. Page 14, if I have a complaint about the issue, it's that the Cylon Mark III doesn't really look descended from the Cylons of the TV show, and its colour scheme seems a little girish. A simple metallic would probably have been more effective. It also seems very chatty for a Cylon. Mm. Although, to be fair, the Cylons in the TV show were frequently seen to be chatty, Hannah, for a very literal sense of humour. Mm. The, the Cylons, um, this Cylon and the story of the Mark III sound quite similar to the 12 Cylons in the remake. What, that he was constructed and then abandoned? That they were constructed to be, like, the best. Yeah. yeah. But, um, when, when the, um, his story, the story's quite, quite similar to the Cylons in Mankind, though. Hmm. We say humans created Cylons and used That them. was never established in the original show. Right, fair enough. In the remake, they rebelled against us, didn't they? Yeah. See, I was, I was thinking that sounds familiar, because, like, humans created Cylons and the Cylons rebelled. Here, the, they, they created the Cylons, but they didn't, the Cylons didn't give the Cylons the chance to rebel. Hmm. 
but in the original show, the Cylon, we were nothing to do with the Cylons. Yeah. We didn't create the Cylons. The Cylon backstory in the original 70s Galactica was quite woolly. Mm. If you read the novel, it gave a completely different backstory to them than what little we got in the TV show. But the they added that to the all three remake, which is essentially just riffing on Blade Runner. Yeah. The Nexus 6, more human than human. Essentially, that's all that we're doing. No, I don't understand complaints about it looking completely different to the other Cylon. Yeah, they could have made it look a little bit more like a regular Cylon. Mm. And had they done this show for the TV show, they probably would have done, wouldn't they? Probably. It probably would just have been a, another campy silver Cylon going, <laughs> um, Pages 15 through 16, Apollo versus the Mark III is Simonson again putting the Maximum into a single-issue comic. It's hard not to think that nowadays this would have ended with Apollo crashing on the planet and then being a two-parter at the very least. The final resolution's a bit pat. The Mark III doesn't fall for the reverse-breaking gag, but does fall for the tripwire gag. But it does show that Apollo's a captain for a reason, something that we never got in the TV show, where we always kind of got the impression he was a captain because his dad was the commander. Yeah. No nepotism in the seventh yeah. millennium of time. You know, this is the... the the re- a remake episode where Starbuck gets crash landed on the planet with a Cylon. Yeah, they did do that in the all three, but they also did it in Galactica 1980. Starbuck crash landed with a Cylon. Yeah, but everyone forgot about Galactica 1980. Well, that essentially was remade as Enemy Mine. Yeah, which was essentially the same idea, but. Yeah, but how they did it in the all three one was they, they took the same central idea but did something completely different to it, didn't they? Yeah. They didn't follow this plot. Um, I do wonder if Ronald D. Moore did read this comic book, though. Yeah. Because there are quite a few similarities. If you read all 23 issues, I mean, I'll mention that later. I've got that a note later on. But there's quite a few things that the series didn't do, that the comic did do, that they would later do in the 2003 remake. Right. So uh, and it's well known Ronald D. Moore does read comics. Maybe, maybe is that? It's possibly read it when it was coming out as a kid. Yeah, and a lot of it just kind of stuck in his head. I have to make a TV show. Let's read the comics based on that. Yeah, because he, he has said for the TV show he only rewatched the pilot. Right. He didn't watch the rest of the series. Uh, page seventeen is a very interesting epilogue where the Cylon Mark III crawls out of the volcano and the implication that from the six vipers it shot down it will be able to build a functioning viper and pursue the fleet giving them another enemy to contend with another possibility is that the mark three Cylon would regroup with the other six prototypes and engage in a civil war with the Cylon empire as they have every reason to hate the imperious leader more than humans but they would never follow up on it which is a shame uh, i thought this was absolutely stellar i love this i read i reread all of the battlestar galactica run for this um, and I thought that this was the standout issue of the lot of them. Marvel's Galactica series manages to take an idea the series has done a ton of times, Apollo crashes on a planet, and amps it up to the nth degree. The Cylon threat here is far greater than any that the characters faced on the series. This one can actually shoot straight for one. And the aerial dogfights are every bit as exciting as any portrayed on the show. The added danger to the fleet, such as the lengths they have to go to just to find food and fuel, is something the original series glossed over, but that the reimagined series would come back to time and again, and along with different makes of Cylons. As I mentioned, it does make me wonder if Ron Moore read the Galactica comics. The Marvel series would continue to do a better job of focusing on the supporting cast than the TV show did. Here, Shadrach, 
the only qualified bomb disposal officer on the ship, but also issues focused on Athena, Boomer and Jolly, as well as taking Starbuck out of the book for a few issues, something the TV show would never do. Simonson's art's great, his expressive face is making up for the fact that the comic didn't have the likeness rights to the actors, and his tech is glorious, with the Vipers especially looking sleek and impressive. The comic also manages to run subplots through the comics with reference to Starbuck's fate. As I've said, this was my favourite issue from the series, although the during escape of the Space Cowboy from issue 19 and featuring the return of Starbuck came within a daggett to her of being picked. Sadly, the comic was cancelled with issue 23. Uh, in true Simonson fashion, he chose to focus on a lesser-known character, and in the final issue, the portly fighter pilot, humorously named Jolly, played by Tony Schwartz on TV, is given a light-hearted romp that actually ends with the Galacticans finding the coordinates of our solar system, and the comic book series ends with the implication that the characters were off to find Earth. Of course, this would not be the end of Galactica, and despite the numerous follow-ups and imaginings, I still get a kick out of the original show, Flaws and All, and the comic it spawned. What did you think of that one, Michael? I really enjoyed it. Is that it? Is that all yeah, you've got? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like the only complaint I had was the style and everything else was pretty good. And the style really did his eye work. Maybe if they made him look a bit more like a style and made him more metallic, we wouldn't have had a problem. As a standalone issue, that's pretty damn good, isn't it? Yeah. It's an excellent issue. Heartily encourage you to find it. Lovely listener. If you have any interest in good sci-fi comic books. Well, Moving on. Next up. Michael's Choice. Yes. Keeping in line with the theme of sci-fi comics, I chose Invincible Issue 23. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. But Michael, isn't Invincible a superhero comic? That's exactly what I was thinking. Well, yes, Invincible is a long-running superhero title published by Image Comics ever since 2003 that's written by Robert Walking Dead Kirkman, with co-creator artist Corey Walker for the first eight issues, and artist Charlie Adler, nope, Ryan Otley as artist <laughs> ever since. Very good. Yeah. Yes, it is true that Invincible is the story of Mark Grayson, son of superpowered Omni-Man, who worked for the super team, the Guardians of the Galaxy, until he killed them all, and was revealed to be the member of the alien race, the Viltrumites, who was sent down to Earth to decide whether it was worthy of becoming part of the Viltrumite Empire. Yes, it's true that Mark gains powers and becomes the hero Invincible and joins the replacement Guardians of the Globe along with other superheroes like Rexplode and Robot and starts super relationships with fellow superhero Atom Eve. Yes, this is all true. Invincible is a superhero title, but why would there be such things as rules if they weren't supposed to be broken? Well, my pick for this week is actually not a superhero story. Yes, in this superhero comic, I've chosen a sci-fi story about an alien who, at this point, had no real function in the main story. The star of issue 23 is Alan the Alien, who first appeared in issue 2, and is the friendly alien who Mark was told to beat up until they both just had a talk and became friends. <laughs> Let's just talk about our problems. Yeah. You got some tofu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really like the cover to this. Whilst it's astonishingly unoriginal to say it reminded me of the Star Wars Cantina, this reminded me of the Star Wars Cantina, uh, Ryan Otley has a very pleasing cartoony style that is clean and uncluttered, and his aliens are all humorous and effectively alien in equal measure. There's a lot of deceptive detail here. The aliens are all eating their food differently from snorting it through a straw, to snurching it up through nose tentacles, to one platter of food in the background still looking stunned that it's about to be eaten. It's funny and entertaining. I do like that Alan's on the cover waving at the reader. Yeah. It's a very, very good cover. What do you think? I, I, I like it. 
It's just simple, though, really. And Ryan Otley's artwork is deceptively simple. Yeah. It comes back to something we have said many, many times. It is harder to be a cartoony artist. Because if everything's cartoony and the lines are all sleek and clean, you can't hide bad work with speed lines. Yeah. And Otley is in that, that category of a very clean, cartoony type artist. Who doesn't do repeated panels. Oh no, no, he never does that, does he? But they've even mocked that in an issue, though, haven't they? I'm pretty sure it was the other artist who did. Uh, was it? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Because it was when they went to see Bendis, and they did repeated panels. They went to see Bendis. Bendis in Invincible. Bendis did a signing. I'm sure it was Bendis or an analog of him. Right, but that would make sense. Yeah. This missive, this machination, was written by Robert Kirkman, with art by Ryan Otler, coloured by Bill Crabtree, lettered by Russ Wooten, edited by Eric Stephenson, published by Eric Larson, and apparently inspired by Cory Walker. Alan is returning home to the Coalition of Planets. Alan is an alien from the, pla- uh, from the planet Unopa, which was destroyed by the Viltrumites before they managed to flee in small numbers. To ensure survival, the Unopans set a breeding camp. And, though, and they were invited to the Coalition of Planets due to their ability to overcome hardships. The Unopan leader devised a plan to genetically alter unborn fetuses in order to create a Unopan strong enough to take on the Viltrumites. However, all of the attempts were failures until Alan came along. Alan proved himself worthy of being used as a weapon against the Viltrumites by taking part in mortal combat, but was defeated. After this, <laughs> Alan was given a new job to search the cosmos for being strong enough to face Viltrumites. This led him to Earth, which he thought was Urath, where he faced the Viltrumite Nolan Grayson, Omniban, who was sent to the planet repeatedly. He then encountered Grayson's son, Mark, aka Invincible, who told him that this was actually Earth and not Urath. Alan was then told by the Coalition that this planet was off limits due to it being controlled by a Viltrumite. Knowing this, Alan returned to Earth to tell Mark this just after Mark found out that his dad was the Viltrumite and almost beat him to death before flying into space. Now, after returning home to Talisgria, the capital of the Coalition, Alan heads to Tadius, the Coalition leader, and informs him of Invincible wanting to help the Coalition, and then heads to his girlfriend's apartment. After much catching up, Alan and Telia <laughs> eat out at a diner until Alan is attacked by a Viltrumite. Three of them surround him and interrogate him over Nolan leading his position. After making a joke at the group's expense, they beat him to death and leave. Which is not a joke this time. <laughs> no. Later, at the hospital, Taddeus informs Alan that he will live thanks to the technology, and that from now on he's to speak only to him as there is a mole in the Coalition. Is it not Thaddeus? It could be. Okay. I've always read it as Taddeus. Yeah, that's fair enough. It works either way. It does, because, you know. Uh, page one! Cat, there is no page one in this issue. It's not, it's completely ignoring page one. Yeah. Page one's largely unconnected to the main plot, and if we ignore this... Being a superhero on this page, I can kind of give you a pass for picking the book. Yeah. Although, had we just followed what Mark's up to with um, at Atom Eve, we could have had 22 pages of sex. It's not, though. It's his other girlfriend, Amber. Is this not? This it is. It's still Amber, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's not Atom Eve at this point. You're absolutely correct. You know that conversation took like, place over three issues? Which conversation? The one between like Mark and Amber. I don't remember, did it? started in one issue. Yeah. And then went into issue zero. And then went into this. Right. And then ended up... You don't look like they're doing much talking in this one, dude. Oh, no. Mm. It's because they got it all done within the other two issues. Did they? Yeah. And it must be very quick if it's a Robert Kirkman issue. 
Not as quick as a Bendis issue. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, page two, where the story really begins. Yes. Uh, I really dug that this was structured like an old Marvel comic. Mm. From the title to the masthead to the credits and the caption box. And my God, it's full of stars. Yeah. Um, I wonder how they do the, stru- uh, the stars. Uh, don't they all just... Isn't it all just computers now? It could be. Isn't all that computer generated? It's actually just the same texture repeated over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine it is. Something like that. Um, the masthead is born of a race endangered. Cast out of their homeworld like a band of gypsies. Tested and experimented on to increase his strength and speed until he emerged a guardian of the spaceways. Image Comics presents Alan the Alien. Mm. I would read an Alan the Alien comic. Would you? Yeah, I would totally read an Alan the Alien comic. Well, you have done. That's true. Yes, a good point. Yeah. I presume the coalition of planets is similar to Star Trek's Federation of Planets. Yeah. I figured as much. Uh, pages three through four. One of the things Kirkman does throughout this series is essentially take characters and origins we know from other comics, characters, the Viltramites are essentially Kryptonians, and then goes in a different direction with them. Essentially, Alan the Alien is Unowen's Captain America, uh, being experimented on with a super serum in the hope of leading his people into battle. The twist here being that even enhanced as he is, Alan is in no way strong enough to take on the Viltramites. Mm. As we see later on in the issue. Yes. Page six shows how much Star Wars has influenced pop culture. Now, I have to confess, I love Star Wars. I think that's well known. But I think I'm ready for a new look at space opera. Because Alan's home world just looks exactly like Naboo. Yeah. Or Coruscant. Or Coruscant. Does this predate them? I'm not sure. Well, this, this was published in 2006... And Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005. Mm. But Coruscant was in Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones as well, wasn't it? Yeah. But I suppose if you're just going to draw a big alien society that's all buildings, there's only so many ways you can render that, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, I have a bit of a problem with Kirkman's writing in this. Why? Because, say on page five, for example, yes. he's, he's doing his whole... Now... Yeah, if I were to tell you this, then I would tell you that Alan is such and such a thing. Yeah. But if yeah, and all that, and whilst it's a way of like bringing the reader up to speed, mm-hmm. it does have the same problem of say Joe Keller. Where what he, you it think it's too flippant? Like he's trying too hard to be funny. Right. See, yeah, see, I get what you're saying with that. Um, I didn't find it as irritating as I sometimes found Joe Kelly's dialogue. Mm. Um. I mean, it did work in not only bringing you up to speed with what's going on with Alan, who's only been a minor character in the story so far, Yeah. so it gives you all of his backstory. It makes it work very well as a single-issue story. But yeah, I I get you that it does come across as a little bit too flippant Mm. for this particular story. But it it didn't really bug me, I suppose. It's all right. Um, On page seven, Picard and Riker make a cameo. So they do. Now, you know what's funny about this? Mm-hmm. Later on in the series, they become main-ish characters. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. And they have a spaceship as well, don't they? They, they take part in the Viltrumite War. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Oh, right. You know, I didn't notice them when I was first reading it. I mean, I noticed them when I read the Viltrumite War. Yeah. That the resemblance to Picard and Riker was um, purely coincidental, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, they, Picard and Riker are there as well. We're in the next generation pyjamas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, page 7 through 8 succinctly covers the story so far. Hmm. Well, uh, the story as of issue 13, anyway. Um, page 8, hmm. 
the Coalition of Planets um, has Battle Beast in it. Yeah. Who was another character in it. And uh, a Borg. There is a Borg on the council. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice that either. That's awesome. <laughs> and that looks like um, General Grievous. Yeah. And he looks like he's wearing Star Trek pyjamas as yeah, well. Yeah, he looks like he's part of the Sinestro Corps. He does look like he's part of the Sinestro Corps. But again, you know, there's only so many different alien races in the galaxy, aren't there? Mm. Some are going to look similar. I'm surprised there wasn't an E.T. though. Yeah. Ellie! Like in the uh, Phantom Menace. Like in Phantom Menace, yeah, in the council. That would have been quite funny. Um, this is a pretty good page in the overall story arc. For those who've never read Invincible, the Viltrumites are a super-powered race, like I said before, think a race of Kryptonians, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. They systematically conquer other planets with their might, but Invincible's father, a.k.a. Nolan Grayson, spent so long on Earth he married and had children. When his elder son Mark learns of his true nature, he stands up to him, and Nolan fled, never to return. Allegedly. This is all building up at this point to the Viltrumite War that takes place... Is that in the 50s? In the comic or in the late 60s? I think it's later than that. Is it into issue 75? We're going into the 70s because he just hit... We've just done issue 100 in terms of publishing. But we've got this in the hardcovers, so we're always like a year or so behind. So when you think about it, this was all like 70 issues built up. Building up to the Viltrumite War, yeah. But they did it in such a good way that you were never... What's a, you never got bored waiting yeah. for the Viltrumite War. And then when that did happen, it was actually quite a good payoff, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It, didn't, it wasn't disappointing. Mm. It, was, uh, it was exceptionally well done. Well I'm not done. sure about disappointing. The war itself, I thought, was pretty great. It's just the end I had problems with. See, I didn't have a problem with the ending. Did you not? No. Well, I mean, well, you've got to consider as well, that was the last boot we read. Yeah. So we've, we've not got the next boot yet. So we don't know where it goes from there. So as mm. far as I'm concerned, it's not ended yet, really. It just stops for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'll, we'll see where, when volume 8 or 9 comes out. Is that where we're up to now? Volume 7 or 8? Something yeah. like that, isn't it? I've got it in the Amazon watch list. Mm. Maybe I'll get somebody to get it with me birthday. Um, page 10. Despite the many and varied alien races depicted in this comic, why is Alan's girlfriend drawn with a figure most human women would kill for? Because if you're going to draw a female alien, why not have her like this? Because she's pretty much got human proportions, apart from the fact she's got no nose. And four ears. And four ears. But other than that... Well, it's like Star Trek. Yeah, but Star Trek was a TV show. There's not many aliens in central casting. So you're limited to what you've got in the Californian gene pool. It was the same thing, you just go with a blue woman. Yeah, but again, (laughs) you're limited to what you can cast when you're casting real people. Well, she's got no nose and four ears. Surely that should have... Uh... So does that count? Yeah. All right, fair enough. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, page 11, lovely little Marvel-esque dilemma for Alan here. Of yeah. a kind seen in semi-tragic characters like The Thing. Because Alan's race is essentially extinct, he's got to give sperm to, to propagate the species, hasn't he? Yeah. So his girlfriends are like, yeah, yeah, come on, let's get it on. And he's like, no, no, I can't waste any. <laughs> Which was quite funny. I mean, the thing never really had a dilemma like that. No. But it, it, was, it was quite Marvel-esque. And uh, pages 12 and 13 were quite funny. Mm. Where he's stuffing his face with maggots. I've no idea. I like what 
his girlfriend's eating, which is also eating his yeah, food. She's eating out of something that he's eating what Alan's dropped. So you get the feeling that the bowl is a little... Oh, no, she's eating his brains. Yeah. <laughs> Chilled monkey brains. So is that it? When you finish the meal, it dies. It dies, yeah. But at the moment, it's still alive, so it's quite happily eating whatever Alan leaves. Yeah. Yeah, Ryan Otley's there. That's great, isn't it? I love Ryan Otley's stuff. I mean, this is pretty much all I know him from. Yeah. Apart from, did we cover a Superman book with the Ryan Otley's art in it? Yeah, the Superman Batman annual. Yeah, because said, we said when we covered that, then we suddenly this became an issue of Invincible. Yeah. And it really confused us, because that's the only thing we've ever, um, we've ever seen him from. I like how um, this issue is set up to be, like, mm. a very funny... You think it's a frivolous comedy issue, Marvel-esque. don't you? Marvel-esque comic and then you instantly turn the page yep. changes yep. drastically pages 16 and 17 is just a remarkable contrast like Michael says uh, as with The Walking Dead Kurtman doesn't skimp on violence in this book but I never got the feeling this was gratuitous violence in the current DC manner yeah. rather Kurtman shows us what a real beating from people that can move moons would look like um, the first time I read this you've got a 12 panel grid of Alan just getting there crap kicked out of him and I, this was genuinely shocking and disturbing yeah wasn't it the first time we read it because it's like you didn't really know Alan that well if you'd been reading the book from the beginning and our previous encounters with him had shown him that he was a sympathetic and likeable character and to see him essentially beaten within an inch of his life here was heart wrenching especially as again like with The Walking Dead Kurtman isn't afraid to kill people off for real in this book uh, and the full page splash of Alan with his arm ripped off and his entrails spilling out and his eye detached is gross. Yep. Especially seen as after they've given him the beating, there is no reason for them to cut his arm off other than they can. Yeah. Because he really does set the Viltrumites up as they are utter scum. Mm. They really are the scum of the earth, aren't they, the Viltrumites? And then it just gets worse because what he does throughout the series is keep adding... Mm. to the story yeah and each time it gets that little bit worse yeah and you just they're just thoroughly unlikable um this was a great issue in a series that just seems to have been overshadowed by the success of The Walking Dead yeah uh yeah it's a series I know I frequently enjoy more than The Walking Dead I think it's better than it yeah I know you think it's better than The Walking Dead don't you yeah um it isn't as repetitive as The Walking Dead for one. Yeah, The Walking Dead follows the pattern of Rick finds a group of survivors, joins them, mm. something bad happens. Rick they leaves. leave. <laughs> um, yeah, and the supporting cast of characters that Kurtman builds up over the series have thankfully taken it very far away from its roots, which was just another what if Superman was evil Yeah, when it started out. Um, albeit with a twist. Instead, the series has developed into a wonderful hybrid of superhero and science fiction, with great characters and constant development. No one is stopping Kurtman from making Mark Grayson 50 years old, if he wants to continue, and this helps it stand out from the pack. Obviously, Alan does survive, yeah, and he gets pieced back together. So now he's an alien burly alive. And then on the last page, we, we get Invincible again. So if we ignore those first two pages... Yeah. I still think you were cheating picking an issue of Invincible, though. Uh, I still think that was cheating. I would have been cheating if it wasn't that issue. Yeah. Although, you know, I could have gone for a uh, Viltrumite war issue and said it was a war story. No, I, I wouldn't have had that at all. I can't let that slide. Because when you said you were picking Invincible, I was like... 
Dude, <laughs> it's a superhero comic. Yeah. But all right, fair enough, I'll give you that it was an Alan the Alien issue and it all took place in space, apart from those first two issues. But the first and last page. Yeah. Not the first two it still issues. still works. Uh, yeah, um, we heartily recommend Invincible. We do. It is very much a standard superhero comic. It's Kurtman doing a standard superhero comic. The advantage that he has is it's a creator on Superman comic. Superman comic. Yeah. Superhero comic. I still think we're doing Happy Birthday Superman. Yeah. So the comic started, Mark was 15. Something like that. When he starts discovering that he's got his dad's powers. Yeah. And then as the story progresses, Mark is now in college, isn't he? Yeah. So he must be about 19 at this point. What was pretty cool with Invincible to me was that despite the slight age gap I was essentially growing up with him mm, essentially you're the same age as I started reading that in primary school has it been going that long? yeah bloody hell just makes you feel really old um, you may have noticed lovely listeners if you've got all the way to the end of this episode that the episode we trailed last week didn't actually happen no it did not but we'll talk more about that next week when that episode will actually happen Yes. So next week on No More Superheroes, next week I'm doing Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. And I'm doing Sergeant Rock. And Michael's doing Sergeant Rock. So next week it's War Comics Week. Yes. Uh, we hope you'll join us. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
probably shouldn't take them too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show, which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at twotruefreaks.lipson.com which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they've discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website, www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you're so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name, and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Quite tough, that. What? The Star Wars character tournament. Han Solo. Right. In his prime. Right. Versus Ewan McGregor's Obi Wan Kenobi. Han Solo. You think? Yeah. Oh, I totally think Ewan had take him. I totally think Revenge of the Sith era Obi Wan would take down Han Solo. Wait, is this if you put the two in a ring and made them fight? Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan, no, no contest. Han may shoot first. Obi-Wan's got a lightsaber, dude. Just deflects it. Yeah, Obi-Wan, totally. But that's also because I think Ewan McGregor's really cool. Fair enough. I like Ewan McGregor. Um, what are we doing? Oh, yeah. And we're back. It's crap being a Jedi. You're the lowest of the low. I don't hate Corellians. They're just wankers. We were colonised by wankers. That's going to make no sense if I cut the Obi-Wan Kenobi stuff out. No, just leave it in. <laughs> I don't hate the Empire. Well, did Snobby ever done that? Train spotting edited into Star Wars. That would be awesome. Ange, Star Wars character tournament. Star Wars era Harrison Ford, Han Solo, versus Revenge of the Sith era Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Who wins? Two enter, one leaves. Why? Because it was a tournament with Harrison Ford. But you haven't read, dude. You think Han Solo could beat Obi-Wan Kenobi in a, like, in a yeah, tournament? Yeah, just shoot him. He's Obi-Wan Kenobi! He's the Force, the lightsaber, the deflection of laser beams, we've seen it many times, the grabbing hold of the gun through the Force and chucking it out of his hand. Well, you know how we can solve this. Alright then, ask me again. No, no, your, your opinion is valid. I went to why I asked you, but I was very surprised you went for Han Solo. Right, no. I'm very surprised that you didn't. No, I, I think it's Obi-Wan. Revenge of the Sith era, Obi-Wan. You know when he was really cool? Another yeah. happy landing. When, or End of the Attack of the Clones. Yeah, because that's still my favourite line in all the Star Wars. I'm here to rescue you. Good, Good job. job. <laughs> you know what we should find out? Star Wars Battlefront 2. Yes. I, I think Obi-Wan. I think Obi-Wan would, would take Han Solo, in my opinion. He did take out Darth Maul. He did. By giving himself to anger. Mm. He totally gave himself to the dark side to defeat Darth Maul. So that Harrison doesn't Ford just doesn't care. There is that. I'm sure you mean Han Solo. Well, Harrison Ford just doesn't care either. But Sorry, Han Solo just doesn't care. 
but I think I, I think you and you would I think Obi Wan would take him. He took out Anakin. He did. Because uh, Anakin, Darth Vader was the chosen one. Anakin Skywalker <laughs> was the chosen one, and Obi Wan took him out. He was the chosen one, dude. I have the high. Anakin, and thus that means you can defeat me, does it, in some way, Obi-Wan? Yes, hack off your legs! And arms. And arms. But that's what I'm saying. Anakin was the chosen one and Obi-Wan beat him. So I think Obi-Wan was, you know... In these new Star Wars movies, I want you and McGregor back. Okay. I, I just thought Harrison Ford would just shoot him. But, <laughs> deflection. Yeah, deflection. Jedi Knight deflection. Yeah, Jedi Knight deflection. He can't shoot Obi-Wan in the back! Why is Obi-Wan going to turn his back? Exactly, it's a tournament. <laughs> Two right. enter, one leave. Star Wars Thunderdome. Oh, right. Yeah. Anyway, Michael's gone elsewhere to be, so we really need to carry on with our uh, with our stuff. And we're back. 